Thank you, Evan. It's great to see you here this morning and great to stand at the front and hear you all singing so well. I've missed that. And uh, what a great idea to uh, stick Chris Pollock and not be room over there on his own. <laughs> I wish I had thought of that when I was here. But if you don't put a lock on the door, you keep escaping. But lovely to see you and what a great morning to be in church. Ah, I was speaking to um, uh, another retired pastor last week. And he was saying where he was speaking in Christmas, in Easter morning, Sunday morning. Uh, and I happened to tell him that I'd be here with you folk. And he said to me, well, have you, have you any idea yet uh, what you've been speaking on? And I said, well, I, I rather thought I'd speak in a resurrection. <laughs> because what else would you speak on an Easter Sunday morning? Because frankly, if we don't have a resurrection to preach... We don't have anything else, do we? That's all we have. Because if Mary had gone to the tomb that morning and the stone was still over the door and the decaying body of Jesus was still inside, well, we might as well pack up now and go and have a cup of coffee and go home because that's all we've got. Because as the Apostle Paul so bluntly put it, if Christ has not been risen, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. And that's why this morning is so important, and it's so good to see you here. That's why Easter Sunday is so important. Everything that we have taught, that we've been taught about salvation, everything that we believe about the gospel of Christ, everything in which we have put our future hope, our eternal security, is predicated upon that tomb being empty when the women arrive. So let's read about it. I'm going to read from uh, John's Gospel, uh, chapter 20. Uh, I haven't put it up on the screen unless somebody is way ahead of me and done that, but uh, I haven't done that. Uh, now, as you know, all four Gospels vary a little in the record of Jesus' life. Uh, some leave out events which others put in, uh, and as you would expect, they vary in some of the details. Um, I know there's some police officers in here this morning, and... Uh, if you had four witnesses and they each came up with the perfect identical accounts of what they had seen, you think, hey, there's something strange going on here. These boys have all got together and got their story straight before they came to see me. And so we have four slightly different accounts of the resurrection. And I'm going to read from John's account, but uh, I might refer to something Matthew, Mark, or Luke noted in there. So let's read from John chapter 20 and verse 1. Early... On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And he saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. 
and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who's it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. Wow, what a passage, huh? But here's the question. Why is Mary so shocked and surprised and distressed to find the tomb empty and the body gone? Now, that might seem a silly question on the face of it, eh? Because just a few days earlier, she'd seen Jesus killed. Uh, He had suffered a very public, slow, lingering death. She had seen his lifeless body taken down from the cross, hastily placed in this very tomb, Uh, before the Sabbath began. And now she had come this morning with all the necessary materials to prepare Jesus properly for burial. So, of course, she's surprised and shocked not to find him there. And her immediate thought is that someone's stolen the body. What other explanation could there be? Maybe... Maybe Joseph of Arimathea had changed his mind and he didn't want Jesus in his family tomb after all. Or maybe the authorities were afraid that the tomb might become a focus, a a shrine for Jesus' followers, and they decided to remove the body and hide it where no one else could find it. And maybe that's why they left the tomb open, so that everyone could see there's no one in there, nothing to see here. Who knows what was going through her head at that point? Well, we know what wasn't going through her head at that point, don't we? What wasn't going through her head was that Jesus had risen from the dead, despite the fact that he had repeatedly told his followers that he would. All four Gospels record Jesus repeatedly telling his followers that one day he would be killed, but that he would be raised to life three days later. Now, I know we have some teachers in here this morning Uh, And you know the value of repetition, don't you? You know that if you're trying to get something into the kids' heads, you don't just tell them once and move on. You've got to keep repeating it until they've got it, you know. And and I'm that generation that sat at the back seat in class and repeated six ones are six, six twos are twelve, six threes are eighteen, six fours are twenty-four, and then the following day you did your sevens, seven ones are seven, seven twos are fourteen, seven threes are twenty-one. And I am an old man with one foot in the grave, and I can still tell you twelve twelves are 144. Repetition, that's how it works. That's how you get it in. And so Jesus just didn't tell them once that he'd be killed and raised to life again. He he kept telling them. Here's three examples from Matthew's gospel. Matthew 16, from that time on, 
Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And then he tells them again in Matthew 17. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Here he is again in Matthew 20. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to him, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised again. So it's not as if they hadn't been told it was going to happen. Jesus kept telling them it was going to happen. So you would think it ought to have been no surprise for Mary discover that Jesus wasn't there. And yet, we see her standing outside that empty tomb, shocked and distressed and wondering what has happened to the body of Jesus. And actually, to be honest with you, I can understand that. Mary and the others are traumatized. The events of the last few days had totally overwhelmed them. Today, I think we'd be talking in terms of post-traumatic shock. That's what we'd be talking about. It wasn't just that they had lost a loved one, and we know how traumatic that can be. But they had watched him being cruelly put to death in the most barbaric of fashions. Compounding the fact was that everybody knew he was innocent, including the judge that had convicted him. The whole case against Jesus had been fabricated, filled with outright lies and distortions of fact. And lastly, but by no means least, perhaps the greatest trauma of all, was that everything that they had believed, everything that they had built their lives upon for the last three years had been utterly washed away, completely destroyed. All their hopes for the future had over a weekend just been burnt to ashes. Jesus would not be going to prepare a place for them. He was dead. He wouldn't be coming back to take them with him. He was dead. He would not be restoring Israel to glory or driving out the Romans or whatever they believed about the Messiah's mission. None of that would happen because he was dead. Their whole world had suddenly fallen apart. And I know that I don't need to tell some of you people that sometimes the shock of traumatic events can totally overwhelm everything that we have been taught. What we thought we knew is is stored up here, stored up here intellectually. But when traumatic events affect us, they affect us in here, don't they? Emotionally. And those powerful emotions can so easily overrule what we know intellectually. We aren't thinking rationally or logically. Everything we know intellectually takes second place to what we're experiencing just at that moment, and we are overwhelmed. The passages of Scripture, which were so meaningful and helpful to us when we heard them preached in church or read them in our quiet time in the morning, They just seem to evaporate. They don't even figure in our thinking at that moment. And that's not a lack of faith. 
It's simply our rational mind trying to come to terms with events that are just spinning out of control. And many of us have been there. If you've lived for any length of time and experienced anything of life at all, you have been there. You know, the resurrection is one of the great sticking points for many people. So much of the life of Jesus in the gospel narrative they can accept. But somebody coming back from the dead? Catch yourself on. Mary's reaction is perfectly understandable, perfectly rational in the face of a completely irrational event. And later, of course, when she and the others get over the shock, they do remember the words of Jesus. They do remember that he said that. They do remember that he taught them that. And that's often when the word of God and the presence and the prayers and the comfort of friends comes into its own. Frankly, when we are in deep distress and shock, I don't think that is the time for a well-meaning friend or pastor to get out the Bible and read Scripture to us. That's the time for them to put their arm around us and hug us and quietly pray for us and tell us they care about us. And later when things are starting to settle a little, then we do find comfort and hope in the Word of God. And that's when we can look back and recall God's presence with us through those traumatic events, even though at the time we weren't even aware of him being with us. We didn't even know he was there. And as John points out, Jesus is present with Mary in her distress, even though she's not even aware of him. And I've always had to remind myself when I was with people who were going through deep trauma that God is not absent here. I have to remind myself that Jesus is present with us in every circumstance. Even when the world is imploded and we're struggling to get our heads around what's happening to us, Jesus is with us. He's beside us. Like Mary, we may not at that moment be aware of his presence, but he is there. And I have to remind myself, Jesus is here. God is not absent. He is with me. And the reason he's with us in those circumstances is because He's alive. Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, Jesus is alive. You see, when we acknowledge this Easter Sunday that Jesus is alive and we've come to celebrate that and you've been singing great, we have to ask ourselves, what does that actually mean for us? What does it mean for you personally that Jesus is alive? We know that it fulfills Scripture and all of that, but what are the implications personally for us? Well, it means a couple of things. It means, first of all, that if you are a Christian, Jesus is not only alive, he is alive in you. Huh? Not only alive, he's alive in you. It's not that Jesus is alive and far away somewhere, but he's alive in you. With all that that means. I read about a guy uh, who had come over here in Ireland on holiday. I think he was trying to trace his roots or some of that stuff. And he was out in the middle of nowhere looking for the old uh, family farm, you know, totally lost and so he stopped the car and asked a local farmer for directions. Rookie mistake. Have you ever done that? To ask a farmer for directions, you know. Uh, the directions usually start, well, I wouldn't start from here. That's the way they start. But the farmer's directions were, go straight down that road till you come to the big tree. And then take a left. And go down that road a good bit. And you come to a field in your right with sheep in it. And when you pass that field, go hard right. 
and keep going, and eventually you'll come to a man leaning on the gate. And, and when you pass him, take the next left, and the house you're looking for is a wee bit down that road. It's got a red roof. And the boy wrote, he says, well, actually, I went down the road, and actually, I found the tree, and I turned left, and I went down that road a good bit, and I, until I came to a field with sheep in it on the right, and I turned right, and I went about a mile up that road, and believe it or not, there was an old fella standing, leaning on a gate, and he waved to me as I went past, and eventually I found the house. Now, the only thing better than those directions would have been if the farmer had said to him, you know, that old house is hard to find. I'm going that way anyway. Let me in beside you and I'll take you there. And while I apologize to all you heavy theologians here this morning with that very simplistic illustration, that in a way, in a very simple way that I can understand, is what it means to have the Spirit of Jesus with us, guiding us and directing us and correcting us when we take a wrong turn. Jesus said, Small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so I'm coming with you, because you'll never find it on your own. That's my very simple interpretation of the gospel. Small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So I'm coming with you, because you'll never find it on your own. We'll never get to heaven on our own. That's the whole basis of the gospel, that you never get to heaven on your own. We need Jesus with us. And Jesus says, I'll take you home. You'll not get lost because I'll be with you. And that only works because Jesus is alive. And the Christian life is having Jesus beside us saying, don't go down there. That's the wrong road. Just stick with me and follow me. And that's what the Christian life is, following Jesus. Not always easy. Don't want to make it sound easy. It's not always easy. And sometimes as evangelicals, we try to make it very complicated, very academic, but it's not. It's not rocket science. It's just following Jesus and trusting Jesus to take us home because Jesus is alive. Every morning, Lillian and I follow a little app on our phone together of Bible readings and prayers and a short reflection It's called Delectio 365. And every morning it ends with this prayer. Father, help me to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help me to give myself away to others, being kind to everyone I meet. Spirit, help me to love the lost. Proclaiming Christ in all I do. Amen. That's the prayer. Living a Christian life isn't complicated, but as we learn from that prayer, we'll never be able to do it on our own. But the good news in Easter Sunday is that we don't have to, because Jesus is alive. But the other thing that comes about as a result of this resurrection morning is this, and it is absolutely incredible, literally incredible. Someone on the news a while ago some politician or political pundit or something, said that with the war going on in Ukraine and COVID and Brexit and inflation and all of that going on, we have a very uncertain future. And I thought you couldn't be more wrong. I'll tell you why. Because uh, a week or so ago, Lily and I were talking about something or other about the house or insurance or pension or whatever. And she said to me, 
But what if sometime something should ever happen to you? You ever have that conversation with your husband or your wife? The, the, uh, what if something sometimes should ever happen to you conversation, you know? And I sort of laughed to myself and thought, well, what are you talking about? Do you mean that if by some freak, one in a million chance, I might someday die? Is that what you mean? You know? That <laughs> <laughs> contrary to all expectations, I am not going to live forever. Is that... Of course, someday if Christ does not return, I'm going to die. Uh, the future is not uncertain at all. In fact, it's very certain, you know. One day I'm going to die. Uh, and so are you. We all are. If Christ does not return soon, all of us here in church this morning will be dead. And there will be a completely different congregation sitting here. Hopefully more intelligent and better looking. <laughs> but it won't be us because our future is certain. We're going to be dead. But the Bible teaches us that that is not the end because, because of the resurrection, something else is certain as well. That's what we're here to celebrate this morning. The Bible tells us that because God raised Jesus from the dead, and because if you're a Christian, Jesus is living in you, God will also raise you as he raised him. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Because Jesus is alive. That's the lesson this morning. Jesus is alive. Now, frankly, that just sounds incredible, doesn't it? I mean, when you talk to people outside about your belief that one day after you die, God will raise you to life again, you know, they give you a funny look and sort of move away because they think it might be dangerous. Because uh, that just defies all human reasoning and logic. Let's be honest about it. That defies all human reasoning and logic. We can understand Mary's distress and confusion. We can understand the disciples not believing her when she told them. We can understand that when they told Thomas what had happened, that he thought they were crazy. We can understand all of that because everything that is rational says, when you're dead, you're dead. It's like the big sign in Lidl's, you know. When it's gone, it's gone, you know. When you're dead, you're dead. And yet the gospel and the resurrection and Easter Sunday morning cuts right across that. And that means that not only is the grave not the end for us if we're trusting in Christ, death is not, was not the end for those loved ones that we miss every day. Moms and dads, grandparents, children, brothers and sisters, best friends who have also died in the faith. And that's why these words of the Apostle Paul are such a comfort to us as we stand at the gravesite of a loved one, where he says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's why we're here this morning. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Wow, how encouraging is Easter Sunday morning? What? So let me tell you that if you're a Christian this morning, that political pundit was wrong. Your future is not uncertain. Your future is certain. Believe me. 
It is safe, it is secure, and it is all of those things because Christ is risen from the dead. So when you go home after church and you take that big Easter egg down off the sideboard and you take it out of its box and you peel off the foil and you you smell, you know that distinctive smell an Easter egg has? Smell that and then hold the big chocolate egg in your hand and, and, and with a couple of fingers, punch a hole inside and outside of it and look inside and it, it'll be empty because it was £2.50 in Asda. <laughs> it'll be empty inside. And I want you to think about Mary that first Easter morning peering into that tomb and seeing it empty. There is nothing there. And that's the basis of our joy and our hope because the tomb is empty because Jesus is no longer there. He is risen. Let me pray and then we're going to move on. Father, we're so happy and privileged and pleased and blessed to be here this Easter Sunday morning to reflect on that amazing, incredible truth that defies all logic and rationality, that you raised Christ from the dead, and because you have raised him, we who are in Christ will be raised also. And so, Father, we pray for each other here. We pray that as we make our way through this world with all its struggles and all its trials and all its sadness, that we find comfort in the words that, that, that you tell us that this is not the end. And Father, we thank you for those that we love who have died loving Jesus Christ and who will be raised again and whom we will meet again. And Father, that is our great hope. That is in what we put our trust. And we thank you, Father, for the reality that Jesus Christ is alive and with us, guiding us, directing us, leading us, bringing us into all truth. Bless us together.